0: All right, if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, before we we read the text, we're going to read 20 verses here, actually, yeah, 20 verses, and um, I want you to pay close attention to the nuances in this section of scripture, because we won't have a a chance to reread a lot of this uh, as we go through the teaching today. So the way that Mark tells this this narrative, this story, the way he like draws us into this uh, this story, it's very important that you pick up on some of the nuances and the things like that. So you, if you have one of those minds that, um, that can see, like when somebody reads, you can see it in your mind's eye, turn that part of your brain on right now, okay? So do that, Mark chapter 5, verse 1, read through verse 20. And they came, and they remember, real quick, sorry, remember they, uh, they crossed over the lake, over the Sea of Galilee, and there was a giant storm, and so now this kind of like picks up where we left off last, last week. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that, that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I am just so humbled and grateful to be teaching your wonderful world and your wonderful word in this great and crazy city. Thank you, God, that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus in this city. We thank you for this, this place, and we know, Lord, we know, even from this text today, that there are principalities and demons over regions, over s- cities, over people, and we know that your power is greater and you are stronger. And I know there's people here today that might feel tormented by something dark, maybe even feeling tormented by themselves. God, I pray today that you would set captives free. I pray, Jesus, that you would be bigger and stronger, that you would be authoritative even in this place this morning. And that you would set us free to worship you and to see you, God. I pray for those who doubt. Your word says that Satan keeps people blinded to the truth. I pray that you would say today to hearts, let there be light, and there would be light today. Open up your word to us. Lord, I'm so um, humble to teach this section of scripture. I humbly come before you, ask that you would anoint me, my mind, and my heart, and my lips, to proclaim your truth with uh, love and patience and boldness. We love you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been studying the book of Mark uh, for, well, some time now, since January, since we started. And Mark, we said, is the first of the gospel writers, the first one to write down a book. And he set out to write a book that captures and sets forth the real Jesus. That's why Mark's writing. That is his intent in writing, to give us, to show us, to explain to us who Jesus really is. And Mark is telling us the story of Jesus in narrative form, meaning... He shows us Jesus by recounting what Jesus did. It's like we've said this many times before. It's like an action movie. It's just all action. Mark's book is action, action. Jesus does this and does that. In the first four chapters of Mark, Jesus has, he's been baptized, been tempted. He's preached the gospel, called people to follow him, leaving their careers, cast cast out a demon in a synagogue, in a church, healed the sick touched and healed a leper, forgives the sins and heals the body of a paralytic, eats with tax collectors and sinners, restores a withered hand, and he calms a flipping hurricane, as we talked about last week. A hurricane comes up on a boat that's 25 feet long, and Jesus just says, sit down and shut up, and the hurricane goes, and goes totally quiet. And the disciples are more freaked out than they were at the very beginning. We talked about last week. And now the boat makes it on, on on its way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so far, the way that Jesus describes all that's been going on, all that's going on in this book so far, the way that Jesus describes it and what's happening, if you're like, well, what's happening? Why is all this happening and happening so fast? Come, Jesus comes on the scene and all this stuff, just rapid fire succession. How and why is this all happening? And the way that Jesus would put it is this is the inbreaking kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God breaking into human time and space. Actually the first words of Jesus in the book of Mark are Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. What's happening, what's going on is that the kingdom of God is breaking in. The ministry of Jesus is the inbreaking kingdom of God. So for the first half of the book of Mark, God's in-breaking kingdom, Jesus looks very superhero-esque, almost superhero, okay? When you read the book of Mark, the very, especially this section, especially this episode here, this seems so superhero of Jesus. The victorious in-breaking kingdom of God looks a lot like what some moviegoers would expect a summer blockbuster to be, Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, calming the sea and the wind by his word, releasing his sovereign power over everything created. And when we come to chapter 5, we see this explained in vivid detail. Last week we saw how Jesus told his his guys, his boys, to get into a boat and they're going to sail on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they cross over to the other side of the sea known as the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. This is Gentile territory. So Jesus gets into the boat. He leads his people over to Gentile territory. They have never crossed over out of the land of Israel yet, out of um, Israeli territory. They went into Gentile enemy, in their minds, territory. And Jesus took them across a tumultuous sea in order to encounter a man. Now look at, look at the vivid detail. Who lives in the tombs, who cuts himself, who howls night and day, who is so strong that he cannot be tamed or bound by anyone, and to top it all off, pigs are involved in the story. This is, as, this is about as unjewishly if that's even a word, if not, I just made it up, as un-Jewishly unclean, or as Jewishly unclean as you can get, okay? If you're, if you're Jewish, you're reading this, this section of Scripture, this is about as Jewishly unclean as you could possibly get. Unclean places, graveyards, you could not go by graveyards if, you're, if you were a, um, if you're a law-abiding Jew. You just couldn't do it. You were unclean. And if you didn't repent and, and purify yourself from the uncleanness of being near a grave or a dead person, you were kicked out of the camp. So unclean places, a graveyard. Unclean people, they were in the area of Gentiles. Unclean animals, there are pigs involved. And unclean spirits, demons. Not just demons, a legion of demons. This here. This story is the total personification of uncleanness, brokenness, slavery, and evil. Basically, this is the total personification of the human condition. And this is also the most vivid account that we have in the whole Bible of an exorcism. This is the most vivid account that we have in the Bible of an exorcism. And this is how we'll look at it this morning. The reality of demons, demons are real. The authority of Jesus, he has it, and the opposition of humanity. That's what we'll see at the very end. So the reality of demons. The reality of demons. This account might be guilty in our modern minds. If you read this story, if you're here this morning, you're really taking this seriously. Like really seriously. Like this really happened? Come on. This might be guilty of being a little too over the top. So much so that we might write it off as like a horror movie or fantasy, but not reality. I mean, this man is living in the tombs, ripped clothes, broken shackles, with supernatural strength, howling at the moon. This sounds like a movie. This sounds like a recent box office flop, maybe. This sounds like like some B-rated something. This This is not reality. This doesn't really happen actually there was a a recent survey of evangelical christians in america it said this 40 percent of american christians 40 percent of american christians are convinced that satan is not a living being but is actually just a symbol of evil satan's not real he's just a symbol that the bible uses to personify evil he's not real Another 19% think maybe that's true, but they're undecided. Maybe that's true. Maybe Satan's not real, but they don't really know yet. So what that means is that's over half of American Christians that don't really believe in the reality of Satan, over half. Now, I won't do that survey here this morning, but you can even ask yourself, do I really believe in a personal devil, a real life devil, demons? Demons. Only about a quarter, 26% of American Christians actually believe there is a real Satan, that Satan is real. Only 26% of Christians believe that Satan is real. Allow me to quote once again from one of our favorite movies, Usual Suspects, Kaiser Soze. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. See, this is one of the greatest tricks of Satan. And you and I, As modern people might be way more comfortable saying, this man living in the tombs in Mark 5 didn't have demons. He had a chemical imbalance. Or a history of being abused as a child. Or some generic propensity to violence. Now those are all very real. But we might think our modern doctors could probably diagnose him. Our modern authorities could definitely tame him. And our modern medicine would actually cure him. There's a problem with that. It still doesn't solve the problem of evil. The Bible has words for mental and physiological illnesses. In Matthew chapter 4, it says that they brought to Jesus all kinds of people with various diseases. It says mental diseases, physical diseases, those with epilepsy, and those who were demon-possessed. See, the Bible makes a clear distinction it doesn't say that everyone has a demon. The Bible isn't overly demonic. It wasn't like, well, anyone who's sick has a demon. You're crazy? Demon. You're chemically imbalanced? Demon. You have a fever? Demon. Stub your toe? Demon. Everything is a demon. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible, there's a clear distinction. It didn't write everything off as being demonic, but it also didn't explain everything away as being sickness either. The Bible is real and honest about the human condition and the problem of real evil. Now, one of the reasons our modern minds don't like to admit that there is a real evil, that issues from a power beyond the self, a.k.a. Satan, one of the reasons you and I don't like to admit that there is a Satan is because that would also mean you would have to admit that you don't have the power in yourself to overcome it. If there is a power that is really outside of me, there is no power in me that can overcome it. That's one of the biggest problems you have, that you and I have with it. And that is actually what this account is about, about a man who no doctor could cure, no authority could tame, and a man who couldn't even control himself. And this account vividly brings us back into the reality that there is a real evil out there and there's a real evil in here. And we cannot, you and I cannot make it without God. This man could not help himself, and no authority or doctor can help him either. And Jesus came looking for him. We need someone to rescue us. So this account, more graphically than any other in the Gospels, indicates the function of demonic activity is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. The, this account, more graphically than any other in the Gospels, indicates that the function of demonic activity is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. And look at what these demons do to this man's life. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Anymore, meaning at some point this man could be bound, but not anymore. Not even with a chain For he had even been bound with shackles and chains and he wrenched them apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and always cutting himself with stones. These demons, first of all, this is very, very, very ironic. These demons gave him supernatural power. These demons gave this man great power. No chain can hold him no shackle could bind him. He could not be controlled. No one can hold him down. You can say this man was free from all men and powerful in a sense. But at the same time, he was enslaved. He wasn't free at all. So he was powerful and could not be bound, but he was a slave at the same time. You can't bind me. You can't hold me down. You can't make me do what you want to do. You can't. I'm free. But at the same time, he was absolutely enslaved. Actually, this man wasn't even that human anymore. The vocabulary of Mark explains this. It was, it's raw and it's brutal. It's words like binding and chains and irons. They were all successful, unsuccessful, and to, to subdue the demoniac. This description is probably more fitting for a ferocious animal than a human. And nobody could control him and he couldn't control himself. This man was not in control. These demons were clearly in control, and he was a slave. Next, notice that he lived among the tombs. He lived among the tombs. Demons continued to push this man so close to death that he was consigned to the land of the dead. He lived in the tombs. He lived in the cold, wet caves that had become tombs. But they did not choose to kill him yet, just to torture him and to torment him night and day and he cut himself with sharp stones this is this part is very interesting and very disturbing it could be read two ways either the demonic forces were making him cut himself or and this is more true of even some forms of depression today he was cutting himself to try and relieve the torment the pain the oppression of the demonic presence inside of him. In summary, he was totally bent on self-destruction. And finally, he was all alone, driven to isolation and seclusion. He lived outside of the town. So this man was tormented, bound, taken over by Satan's demons, real demons. Not talking here about a disorder, not a chemical imbalance here, he was literally demonized is the Greek word. He was demonized. Now, a couple things about Satan and demons. First thing is Satan and demons don't like to be talked about. So, pay attention. A couple things about Satan and demons. First thing. Satan and demons oppose God and the will of God. This is like a no-brainer, okay? You guys should know this. Even if you've never been to church before, you know, like, who's Satan? Well, he's the enemy of God, right? Right, correct. The name Satan means sworn enemy. The name devil means slanderer. So Satan hates everything about God and his created order and vows to destroy and thwart all his plans and his will. That's what Satan does. We heard a couple weeks ago that Satan, after the Word of God is preached, comes in and snatches away, to, away the Word of God. Satan hates when you hear the Bible. Satan hates when you appropriately apply the Bible. And it's good to mention here that there are no atheistic demons. Satan is not an atheist. All demons believe in God. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe in God. However, they believe, but it's not a saving belief. They never repent nor devote their, their beings to Christ. Rather, they oppose all his works. The second thing that I think is very important to you and me about demons and Satan, Satan and demons oppress humanity and seek to destroy. Satan and demons oppress humanity and seek to destroy. Again, this is vividly portrayed in our text. The demonic goal is to destroy the image of God in humanity. The demonic goal is to destroy the image of God in humanity, to mar the image of God, to distort the image of God, to make you less than human, to wrap us up in so much self-destruction to where you begin to do things like cut yourself, hit yourself, eating disorders, drink yourself to death, become so sex-driven that it actually suddenly becomes your God, becomes so career-driven that you isolate everyone else you love. And Satan is so good at doing this to humanity that we don't realize that we're slaves until it's too late. Until if somebody was to confront you or make a show about you called Intervention, you still don't get it. You're so lost in your own lie to where we know we hate ourselves, but we would never admit it. We know we hate ourselves, but we would never admit it. And it spirals us, even that thought, I hate myself, but I'll never tell you that I hate myself. And that even spirals us down into more and more self-destruction. John ten ten says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief, another word for Satan, another name for Satan, only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, Jesus says. And this is why when we are saved by this Christ to the abundant life of Jesus, Scripture tells it like this. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The, the zip code of darkness. We live there. It's our domain. That's our address. We live there. And He transfers us. He moves us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. He moves us there. There is a real evil and a real Satan, and if you don't believe that, he's already winning. That's the fun part of the message, okay? Now let's talk about the authority of Jesus. This is the funner part. Now I know that it's a downer. Whenever you talk about Satan, you're like, dude, wow, really? Satan today? Well, here look at the authority of Jesus now. Look at the authority that Jesus has over the demonic. Though Satan and demons are the sworn enemies of God and his created order, it's Jesus that goes looking for this man. Jesus goes looking for this man. Jesus crosses into Gentile territory through a demonic storm right into the den of the legion of demons to deliver this man and to destroy the works of these oppressive spirits. 1 John 3 says, and we've read this several times before, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus takes the gospel way beyond the confines of holy Israel, right into this heathenistic world of pigs and Gentiles and tombs and evil spirits. It's like God is searching out for those who have never searched for him before or thought about turning to him. Think about that. God here crosses over the sea into Gentile territory and seeks out someone who were never told sought God ever. Jesus makes the initial move. God is a great initiator, and this is consistent with all of scripture. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Jesus that is the great initiator. He's the one who goes to pick a fight with the powers of darkness. Jesus goes and does what no other human is able to accomplish. No other doctor, no other medicine. That's the point of this whole narrative. That's actually the point of the whole book of Mark. I'm going to read a quote to you by Merrill Unger, who writes extensively on the topic of demons. He says this, it was his, Jesus' avowed intention to engage the enemy in order to defeat him, to challenge his power in order to destroy it, to search out the cancerous sore in order to heal it, to undo, in short, all the woe and wickedness Satan has wrought, and to prove his own deity and messiahship in the conquest of moral and spiritual evil." This is what Jesus has come to do, and in this text, it's like Jesus is demon hunting. It's marvelous. He's like, let us go kill us some demons. He is searching for demons. Now, normally in Mark's text, they find him, always. He's walking out, and they come to him, and they fall at his feet. He's preaching, someone stands up, but Jesus here, the legion of demons, he goes demon hunting. He goes looking for them. I don't suggest that you do this. If you do, you might get beat up like in Acts, the seven sons of Sceva. You might be beat up and left naked. I don't know. you not normally recommended that you go. Actually, the disciples didn't even even say the disciples got out of the boat. They were like Gentile territory. They're like hunkering down, staying in the boat. Jesus goes, go "Go ahead, do your thing. Whatever you got to do, we'll be here chilling. And Jesus, it says, Jesus steps out of the boat, and he goes and does this. This is, again, a small picture of what's happening in the whole book. Jesus steps out of heaven comes to earth to rescue us, initiated by God, not by us, by God. He did it. He's the great initiator. In your own life, when I got saved when I was in high school, I didn't grow up Christian. I went to church like twice. I remember them vividly. One was a super Pentecostal church, and it scared me to death. And then I went to Catholic mass a couple times. I never ever sought out God unless I was too drunk and I was praying, please make this throwing up stop and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. That's the only time I cried out to God. That's it. When I party too hard, I'm like, "I, I can't walk. I can't breathe. and I can't stop throwing up. God, if you're there, help me. That's it. I did nothing, but God came and sought me out. This is what God does. He is the great initiator. That's great hope for our city. That's great hope for our families. That's great hope for us. God is on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Jesus crosses this lake, almost drowns by this storm, steps off the boat into the tombs, and says, I'm looking for legion. And he frees this man. We jumped ahead. Let's let's, let's scroll back here a second. Jesus here, and look at verse 6 and 7. says that, and when, excuse me, and when he saw Jesus from afar, when this demoniac, this crazy man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, it says later on that this man had a legion of demons. Now, a legion was a Roman military word meaning around five to 6,000 men. An army of five to 6,000 men. That's what legion meant. So Jesus goes, what is your name? And this man goes, or the demons go, my name is legion. Probably like in that demonic, scary voice. My name is legion. I've seen this voice, by the way. I don't have time to get into that right now. My name is legion. Now, legion's like five, six thousand, it's an army of five or six thousand men. There's probably something like five or six thousand demons in this man. Not one. My name is Harry or whatever. No, (laughs) my name is Legion. And it says, for we are many. We're a giant army of the opposing kingdom come against this man and humanity. And Jesus looks at him This man with approximately 6,000 demons. And what do they all do, including the man in the presence of Jesus? They all run to him and they fall at Jesus' feet. Now, you have to catch the ironic comedy that Mark loves. That's why one of the reasons why I love the book of Mark is it's fast. I like that. And it's funny. And I like that as well. The demonic or the, the ironic comedy that Mark loves to point out is this the demons basically fall at Jesus' feet and then tell Jesus, swear to God, you won't torment us. That's what they tell Jesus. Hey, Jesus, swear to God, you won't torment us. Even though they've been tormenting this man the whole time. Demons are like typical bullies. They can dish it out, and they cannot take it at all. They could torment this man and torment this man and torment this man, but they make Jesus say, Jesus, swear to God, you won't hurt us. And then they try to negotiate with Jesus. Pay attention to what the demons want because it's very, very telling about demonic activity. First, they wanted hosts. Verse 12, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. They wanted someone or something to torment and inhabit. Don't let us roam. Give us somewhere to go, Jesus, please. So they asked for the pigs. They didn't want to leave they didn't also, they didn't want to leave the region, which is also very telling. Verse 10, and they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region or the country. The demons wanted to stay in that region. They wanted to stay there. In some way, demons are very territorial. We get this, I'll get another glimpse of this in Daniel chapter 10. If you've ever read the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, I don't recommend that you just start in Daniel chapter 10. Maybe start at the beginning and read it. It's a pretty gnarly book. But in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is given a vision by an angel. And when the angel finally shows up after some like three weeks, the angel goes, I was dispatched as soon as you started praying, but I was held up by the prince of Persia, this demon over Persia. And he held me. And then the the chief prince, Michael, the archangel, came and released me and then I was set free to deliver to you the message. That's crazy. Demons somehow love territories. They love places. They go over and they, like, don't send us out of this region. We love this region. We're actually given, if they're a legion, this is our post, you could say. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, we're shown a very, very detailed description of demons and, like, where they are in their ranks and things like this. So here it's, it, it shows that they want hosts, and they didn't want to leave the region. And look at what Jesus does. He gives them permission. He says yes to both of the demons' requests. And for a moment, it looks like Jesus and these demons have struck a deal, have struck an accord. The demons get to stay in the region. They get what they want. They get to stay in the region, and they get new hosts, and Jesus gets what he wants this man goes free and set free from these demons. But the comedy concludes when the demons enter the pigs and they find that they are incapable of controlling these pigs or their brutal rage, and they send 2,000 pigs over the cliff into the sea, thus destroying their new homes and getting kicked out of the region. And their pigs. So if you're Jewish, that's even more funny and awesome. So if you're reading this, you're like, they go, we want to stay in the region, and we want hosts. Okay, go to the pigs. The pigs jump off the cliff, out of the region, and the, bo- and the pigs die. They lose their hosts. And you could just see Jesus. I could just see Jesus. This is the funny part. As all these pigs are like, you know, swine diving into the ocean or whatever. <laughs> Jesus is like, just laughing to himself, just like, just suckers, I got you again. Just idiots, you're so dumb, you're demons. At first it looks like, demons are like, can we go to the pigs? And Jesus is like, yes. They're like, yes. We outsmarted Jesus. Go to the pigs. And the pigs die. And look at Jesus' power and authority over the demonic. And it's it's illustrated in, in Mark's narrative by Jesus casting out the legion the same way, the exact same way he casts out one demon in chapter one of the book of Mark. The exact same way. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves when he hears the demonic, the demoniac say in Mark chapter 5, my name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus doesn't go, okay, and then like take this superhero fighting stance. He doesn't like step back and go, okay, guys, everybody step back. This is going to be crazy. Same thing he does, leave. That's it. The same thing, the same word he used to calm a storm, a hurricane. With his word, one demon, 6,000 demons, a hurricane, his word. That's it. That's the authority and the, opow- the power of Jesus. Because the plight of Israel, the plight of humanity, was not an oppressive government, the Romans, whose symbol for their legion was the pig, actually. It was not that they, what, what they did not believe or how they behaved. The root problem was Satan. Evil had taken up residence in humanity. And Jesus comes to undo and restore broken humanity. Actually, if you step back and get a snapshot of this entire section in Mark, Mark is showing how Jesus is restoring everything that has come against humanity. Last week, the storm, nature. This week, demons. Next week, sickness, and death. If you step back and look at it, Jesus is dealing with death threatened by a storm, death threatened by a demon, death threatened by death, and sickness. Jesus, by his word, heals all of them and makes everything right. Demons dominate people. Illnesses make them less than whole, and nature threatens to destroy. And what Jesus does when he breaks in, he challenges every other claim to power on us everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from the way that God has made us. And Jesus takes personal offense to these things, and he goes after, on mission, to set them right again. But lastly, we see the opposition of humanity. Now you could say, we've said this in Mark chapter 1 when we went through this section, a section of the power of Jesus, that Jesus has a limited authority. He's chose, he's chose to limit himself. He could easily, with the same word, tell these people he's not leaving their region as he did with the demoniac, but he didn't. 15, verse 15 says, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it Describe to them what had happened to the demon the possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The crowd here abnormally reacts to Jesus. Normally, the crowd loves Jesus, starts to bring him all who are sick and demonized. We've seen that in the book of Mark. But they ask him here to leave. Hey, leave us alone. Why? Why do they say leave? Because of the pigs. Some of you might read this story and be a pig sympathizer or an animal lover and think, why did 2,000 pigs have to die? Why did the pigs have to go? Or maybe not. Maybe you don't care. You're like, whatever. I don't, I'm kosher. Whatever. I don't like pigs. Imagine there was this crazy man who lived by the dog park. And Jesus comes and cast out a legion of demons out of the man, and they went into the dog's and 2,000 dogs jumped off the cliff to their death, what would the dog owners think of Jesus in San Francisco? Leave our city right now. You killed my dog. You killed all our dogs, and we don't like you. See, now, like, that, that's totally different now. Like, talking about dogs, especially if you have a dog, you're like, Jesus killed my dog? I'd be mad. This is the prob- probably the same reaction that we would have right now as is what, is what they had then. These, prig- these pigs were their property. These pigs were their livelihood. These pigs represented a lot of income and capital. The philosopher Bertrand Russell, in his famous essay, Why I Am, why I Am Not a Christian, pointed to this story to explain why he wasn't a Christian, because of the pigs. But to weep over the destruction of the pigs shows that we don't have our priorities aligned with Jesus' priorities. The soul, and this is what this story shows us, the soul of this man is worth more to Jesus than 2,000 pigs, than 200 dogs, than the profits of a company. Think about that. The soul of a man is worth more to Jesus than the profits of a company. But even more than that, our souls to Christ are worth Him dying for. At the zenith of Mark's story, Jesus himself will end up naked like this man was, isolated like this man was, outside the town and among the tombs, in the tomb as this man was. His flesh will be torn like this man's flesh was torn. He would be shouting, Jesus will shout incomprehensible things and howls like this man did when he is on the cross to give himself up to evil that jesus might destroy evil and this is the great reversal that we see over and over and over again in mark's story jesus takes our place because the legion story records in vivid detail what is true of us all by nature every single person in this room whether you believe me right now or not this is true of us all We are all slaves to evil. We are all not free, even though we try to be free. We are bent, we are bent ultimately on self-destruction. And neither ourselves nor others are capable of breaking the powers which have bound us. Christ alone has the power to break sin and evil in our lives. Of satanic oppression or even demonization, Jesus can free you from demons. Jesus can free you from evil. Jesus can free you from sin. Jesus can set us free. That was his mission in the book of Mark. And maybe this morning he is coming and looking for you to set you free. Trust in Christ this morning and be free. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your power and your authority. And I say this morning, you are, you are awesome, God. You are powerful and mighty and strong and mighty to save, God. You can save people. You can free us from evil, the demonic. You can free us from ourselves. A lot of us need freedom from ourselves, God. We live in our heads. We become slaves to stupid things that we hate. Only you can free us, Lord. Only you can, God. Thank you that you are stronger, more victorious. And we worship you, Lord. We look to you, God. This is not a game. We don't live in a city that is um, neutral. We believe, Lord, and we know, we see it. We live in a city that uh, that is either radically for you or radically against you. And so, Lord, humble us. I pray, God, that you would this week send us out on mission where we're at in our lives to show forth the love and the mercy of Christ, that you love this city, that you love us, God, that you've come to search and save us. And it says at the end that it was because of your mercy. You told this man to go back into his town because of the mercy that you've shown him. Oh, your mercy. Thank you for your mercy, God. We look to you. We love you. We ask that you would set us free this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.